Welcome to this week's podcast at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Hey, if you want to grab a Bible, we're going to jump uh, right into it, into Matthew chapter 9. And, and uh, you know, as we do that, I, I just want to pray... Um, you know, I think the Lord, I know the Lord is at work in each one of us, and there's some here today that need to also, you know, take the example of these individuals, these kids that are following Christ and saying, you know, I want my life to be devoted to him, and we need to take that same step. You know, baptism is just an act of obedience. It's a recognition of Jesus' death and resurrection for us, and my saying, hey, I want to follow in his footsteps, and listen, if, if that's where you are, we wanna have that opportunity, the privilege, it's a privilege for us just to sit down with you to talk about that. Regardless of age, this is not about what young kids do, it's about what Christians do. And so if that's where you are, we want that opportunity to share that with you. And so, Father, as we read your word this morning, as we gather, I, I recognize that in this room there's people at different places of discipleship, some that are still considering the claims of the gospel, Jesus, who you are, your lordship, and there's others, Father, that have followed you, and maybe they followed you for a long time, but they have fallen away, they've never been baptized, and Lord, through the Spirit, you're calling them to yourself, you're calling them to be obedient and to say, yes, I want to be an example for others, I want to follow Christ, I want his story to be my story. And so, Father, as we celebrate this morning what these three individuals have done, Lord, would you stir in us a deeper hunger for you, and Father, a commitment to put you first. Guide us into this, Father, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So there's a quote I wanna start with before I read this passage, and it's from a guy named A.W. Tozer. And the quote goes like this. He said, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Now, when I first heard that, I didn't quite get it. But hopefully, as we go through this passage and we begin to look at who God is and how he responds to us and in different moments of life and maybe how we perceive God, Maybe that truth, that reality, the most important thing about us is the way we think about God will begin to change us because see, what you believe about God will show up in your life and it'll show up in the way that you respond to the Father. That when you're going through sorrow or sickness or sadness, when you're caught up in sin, what do you think the Father thinks about you? And see, that reality of what you believe about God will either draw you to him or it has the ability to push you away from him. So let's jump in this passage, which is a summary verse in Matthew chapter nine. Matthew's transitioning from this picture of Jesus as one who has authority. He teaches with authority. He does things with authority. And suddenly, what's gonna start happening in chapter 10 is that authority's gonna fall on us. The disciples start doing the very things that Jesus did, that this authority that Jesus walked in and lived with, it's going to transfer from himself to his disciples as we begin to do the very things that Jesus has done. So let's jump into it. Matthew chapter nine, verse 35. 
And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers into his harvest. And then chapter 10, verse one. And Jesus called to himself 12 disciples and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. What Jesus has done, he's sending us out to do. Luke says, be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. That's Luke quoting Jesus. That we are to have the same compassion that God has had for us. We are to have that compassion for others. But where does that come from? Because see, the key verse in this text is in verse 36. Be, uh, sorry, when he looked at the crowds, he had compassion on them. And see, this week as I was studying, I spent a lot of time just looking at this one word, and it's a crazy word in the Greek. Typically, I don't use a lot of Greek words, but this one is something you kind of need to know because it's so odd and strange, and there's a lot of words for compassion and mercy in the New Testament, but this, this really is a unique and strange word. And if you want to throw that word up there, it's, this is how I'm going to pronounce it, okay, you English majors. I'm gonna call this phlagnizomai. I don't know what you do with the CH up there. If you see that and you're like, that's not how you pronounce that, that's okay. Phlagnizomai. Now, let me explain to you what this is, and it's this word, compassion. We see that Jesus has this level of compassion 10 times in the New Testament. We're actually gonna follow each one of those experiences and categorize them and look at what that compassion was directed towards. But this idea of compassion, it's not the kind of compassion you have when you're at King Supers and you're going down the cereal aisle and you see that mom or you see that dad and their little boy, little girl sprawled out, right, on the floor because he cannot have any Cocoa Puffs. <laughs> and you have said no to the Cocoa Puffs and that kid is just screaming and he's, he's losing it. When you look down that aisle, what do you feel? I mean, hopefully, if you're human, you feel compassion. You may feel some embarrassment, some self-pity. That's not the level of this kind of compassion. This kind of compassion, the word really means to bellow from your bowels. See, they thought in, in ancient times, they thought that love and pity didn't come from the heart. It actually came from someplace in here in the stuff that bellows, the stuff that moans. And so to bellow with compassion is that deep internally inside of you, there is this movement of soul and mind towards another human being. You know, this week I felt it when I saw that story where the apartment complex or the condominiums had just flat out collapsed. The story of a little boy, a 10-year-old uh, boy, just a little bit older than my son, 
And he was crying out after this building had collapsed and he was with his mother. I don't know if his mother ever got out. But the story of someone rescuing him. See, when you hear a story like that, when you see someone suffering, it's not just simply that you feel pity for them. No, what you wanna do is you wanna rush out there and do something for them. It's what happens when we see starvation in the world, when we see injustice, when we somebody, see somebody who's defenseless and they're being attacked by those that have power and authority over them. It's not just simply compassion and pity. It's something that's deep inside of you and you say, this has to stop. I've got to do something about this. Jesus felt that level of compassion when he looked at the crowds. The question is, what do you see? See, when I look at crowds, I see problems. I see issues. I see people who are in my way. When you go up to the ski slope and that, that line is about two or three times longer than usual, do you have compassion? Or you just see people who are in my way. Jesus had the ability to look at people who were messed up, people who were broken, people who were disobedient, people who had, listen, messed up their own lives, and it was their own fault. And instead of just bringing judgment or condemnation, Jesus addressed sin, but when he looked at the sin of individuals who were suffering and broken, it caused this deep compassion to well up within him. And he said, I've got to do something about this. Now, six places, I'm gonna move pretty quickly through this so we can get to the end of it, but six places where we see this happening. The first thing we see is Jesus has compassion towards people who are in pain. When there's someone in suffering or pain, when somebody had blindness, he saw them and his deep within, he was moved to compassion and Jesus would reach out and he would touch the blind. Jesus also had compassion towards people who were sorrowful. There's this amazing story in Luke chapter seven about this woman. She was a widow, her husband had died. And not only had her husband died, there was a funeral procession. She's walking behind the corpse of her son. So that means she has no one to care for her, no husband, no son. She is absolutely alone. And in Luke chapter seven, verse 13, when Jesus saw her, it says he had splagnizomai. He had this deep guttural reaction and he said to her, do not weep. I could imagine Jesus coming alongside her, caring for her, loving her. It moved him to a place of identifying with her grief. Jesus had compassion toward the sick, towards those who were sorrowful. Jesus had compassion towards those who had physical needs. You think when the crowds were surrounding Jesus and he noticed they had no food. And he realized if we send them away, they're not gonna get to where they need to go unless we do something. That same word, splagnizomai, Jesus deep within this gut punch caused him to react and he says, we have to meet this need. It's not enough just simply to have sympathy but I'm gonna have this kind of sympathy that's gonna move me out to touch somebody else's life. Jesus had compassion. Fourth, so Jesus had compassion for pain, sorrow, physical needs, but he also had compassion for loneliness. When he saw individuals who were cut off from culture, from family, from society, something deep within him said, this isn't right. I've got to do something about this. Amazing story early on in chapter nine. There's this man who has leprosy. And what leprosy was, it's a horrible disease, but more than anything, it kept you out of 
community. You couldn't be with family, you couldn't touch someone, no one could touch you. And so what's amazing is when the leper comes to Jesus, the words he uses are, Jesus, if you were willing, you can make me clean. He doesn't say, Jesus, if you're willing, you can heal me. Because what does he long for? He longs to be brought back. He longs to be included. He longs to be loved. He longs to be back in the family. And Jesus says to him, listen, because I, he had compassion on him, and he says, I am willing, be clean. The most important thing about you is what you believe about God. In your loneliness, in your sorrow, in your sickness, what is God's attitude towards you? You starting to see why that quote is so powerful? What you believe about God in your loneliness, it's either going to cause you to run towards him or it's going to push you away. What you believe about God, and Jesus is revealing what Matthew's saying in this passage, which is summarizing everything that's come before and is kind of a pointer to what's coming ahead. This is the character of our God. Now let me go just a step forward. Not only did Jesus have compassion for loneliness and sickness, he had compassion for the suffering of our sin. I want you to stop there for a moment. Jesus had compassion for the suffering we bring into our lives because of our own foolish decisions. There's a story in Luke chapter 15. You may know this pretty well. It's the story of the prodigal son. Essentially, the son comes to his father and says, Dad, listen, I know you've done a lot for me, but I wish you were dead. Now, in my day, that would have been a trip to the woodshed, and I probably would have lived in the woodshed for a couple months and it was no different in Jesus' day. They expected a beating to follow, but instead this father gives his son what he wants. And instead of investing it and building this amazing business, he goes off, he finds prostitutes, drugs, he finds whatever he can to, to fill his heart with pleasure, and he squanders it. And eventually he finds himself in this pigsty, and he's longing to eat the scraps the pigs have left behind. And it says in the text that he came to his senses. You may have experienced that. Realizing what suffering and sin has brought on you. So you know what? My father's servants have it better. And I know, he thinks in his mind, I know my dad can't bring me back in as a son because see, grace isn't that big. In his mind, grace can't cover my sin. God's love is not big enough. There's no way I can be a son again, but it maybe, maybe, I could be his servant. And when he starts walking back, I want you to, let's put this on the screen. You need to hear these words. And when he arose, Luke chapter 15, verse 20, and he came to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt splagizomai, compassion, deep inner welling of soul, a punch to the gut. I've got to do something. What did he do? What did he do? Do you know how little repentance this boy has? He doesn't think his father has that much love in him. He thinks, I can only become a son. I can't be a son. The smallest amount of turning towards the father, and notice, he ran and embraced him. He kissed him. He said, son, I'm taking the ring off my finger. I'm putting my robe on your back, and we are having a celebration that's gonna tick off the older brothers because they don't think you deserve it. We're gonna celebrate. Do you know why that's good news? 
because I understand the suffering of my own sin. You know, when I was a young man, I came to faith pretty young, about 19 and through young life, and I saw this, this guy was talking, an older guy, and I thought he was ancient. He's probably only 60, but when you're, when you're 20 and you look at someone that's like 60, you're like, man, that dude's, that dude's wrinkly. He's old. <laughs> and I remember him saying that, I remember this, and I don't remember a lot of sermons, but I remember this, and he was saying, you know, at, at whatever age I'm at, I thought I would be more holy than I am. You know, I thought I'd be further down the road. Some of you may be like, yeah, yeah, I get that. And at 20, I thought, what did this guy do? I mean, dude, what did you do in your life? Because see, I just come to faith in Christ. I'm thinking, this is it. I'm following Jesus, and my life is gonna be so clean, and God's gonna clean up the lust in my life and the bitterness, and it's gonna be me and Jesus and glory and angels. That's what it is. I was a 20-year-old Christian. Stupid, but I love Jesus. Now, at 46, I understand what he's saying because, see, I've hurt enough people. I failed enough time, but I've also had the opportunity to look deep within my own heart when I look at crowds. Let's get a little honest. When I look at crowds that are wearing T-shirts I don't agree with, representing things I don't stand for. When I look at crowds, I don't see and experience compassion. I see problems. And often what comes out is condemnation. I don't understand the compassion of God because see, I don't see myself rightly. Paul said at the end of his life, Jesus came to save sinners. We'd all say amen. And Paul says, listen though, I'm the worst. I'm the worst. What does that mean? I need the most compassion. We're talking Paul guy that saw dead people raised, entire communities transformed, the economic structure of a community changed because the gospel has taken root. And when he looked at himself, he said, I am someone who's in desperate need of compassion, God's mercy and forgiveness. God is merciful to the sinner, but church, are we? Are we? See, Jesus is merciful towards the suffering of sin with the smallest movement towards him. And then finally, we're gonna get back to this passage. Jesus, and hear this, he has compassion, splagizomai, this deep guttural experience for the shepherdless, for people who do not have a voice speaking into their life from God. For a community of people that do not have someone saying, hey, there's a better way to live. There is a creator you've rebelled against, but listen, he is crazy about you. For God so loved the world. Do you know what the world means? It means the rebellious, rebellious cosmos. <laughs> it's not just our little children and bunnies and beautiful sunrises. Jesus loved the rebellious creation, which is us, and he gave his life for us. When Jesus looked out of, out of the crowd, listen, he knew there was sin in the crowd because Matthew was there. Remember Matthew, tax collector. Matthew's in the crowd. You know who's also in the crowd right now? Who Jesus in chapter 10 is gonna give power and authority to go touch lives? His name was Judas. If you're Jesus, you given power and authority to Judas to go out and do in your name? You know what he's gonna do. I don't know if it gets much worse than Judas. And you know when Judas betrayed Jesus, go look at the word that Jesus used to greet him. 
I would have said, Judas, you, it's Sunday at 9.30, I can't do that. (laughs) You, he said, friend. Jesus knew that sin was as much something Judas did as something he was enslaved to. When Jesus looked at the Pharisees, he had some of his harshest words. Yet, do you know the story of the parable of the prodigal son? There's another son involved. It says in Luke 15, there were both sinners sitting around Jesus' feet and the Pharisees. When Jesus told that story of the elder brother who wouldn't love his younger brother and go to the party and be with his father, it was his compassion towards the religious leader saying, guys, wake up, wake up. Sin is something we do, but realize sin is also something that's done to us. And when Jesus looks out at crowds, he sees what they do. He gets upset and angry at times for the sin that people commit. But see, he is broken because he realizes they can't change. Only the gospel can change them. So let's jump quickly back into this passage. Jesus is compassionate for the shepherdless. And pick it up again just quickly in verse 36, and when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Why? Because, notice, they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Now, the terms harassed and helpless, again, in the Greek, Greek often has images behind words. So when we think of agape, this God-centered love, helpless and harassed, first of all, harassed means to be cut open, If you actually look it up, and there's a great app called the Blue Letter Bible. I do most of my studying through a simple app that's free. You guys could use this. And you click on this word harassed, and it brings up the Greek word. You don't have to even know how to pronounce it, and it says filleted. When he looked out on the crowds, he saw people who were cut open and had been filleted. And then the next word, helpless, again, you go in that Blue Letter Bible, click that word, it says they have been cast down. They have been flung aside. What is that an image of? It's an image of what an army does when it goes through a crowd. It cuts you open and it fillets you, it lays you down. You know what's also an image of? It's an image of what you see when you go back to the paddock and you had about 100 sheep and about seven, eight full-grown wolves showed up the night before and there was no shepherd. And you look out, there may be some that have survived but they're over in the corner and they are shaken and they are afraid, and the rest are cut open and filleted because they have nobody to speak up for them. They have no one to speak the truth. They have no one to show compassion. When Jesus saw the sin of the world, he had compassion for God so loved. But what do we see? I'll be honest, I don't, I don't see just shepherdless people. I see people who should probably get what they deserve. Often, what comes out of us is a judgment that God did not put on us, but put on Jesus himself. You see, what Jesus sees is they are shepherdless. And remember, when Jesus had splagizomai, you know what he did? What, what, what happened? Is he saw the leper and he touched him. He saw the blind man and he healed him. He saw the hungry people and he fed them. So what's he gonna do now? If he has compassion, the next step will be he's going to do something. But guess what? He's passing on that responsibility to us. Did you notice what happened in verse 38? For the first time, compassion was experienced, but Jesus didn't do anything. 
Instead, he looked at his disciples and he said, hey boys, listen. Therefore, therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. When Jesus sees a crowd of people that are broken by sin, he sees an opportunity. We see problems. What does Jesus call a harvest? A community of shepherdless people who are broken down by life and sin. Jesus says, guys, this is your opportunity and this is where the gospel shines. So when he says, and I'm gonna, I wanna apply this real quick. When he says we are to pray for laborers, I want you to apply that, that prayer by looking at verse chapter 10, verse one, and realizing who those laborers were. He said, guys, listen, I want you to pray for laborers. And then in chapter 10, verse one, he said, now go out and do it. You know, when I pray for laborers, I'm praying for someone that is not called me. Right? God, go send somebody to those people. They are messed up. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying when he uses the word earnestly, that means to beg. In the same way you beg for God for something for yourself, you say, God, when I see a need, God, I beg you. You would give me compassion for that need and you would send me out. Oh my. Father, I beg you that you would give me compassion for the needs that I see and would you raise me up to do something about a church? How does that begin to change what the church looks like? You know, if I'm gonna do that, you know who needs to change in this room? Do you know whose heart needs to change? You know whose attitude? It's me. Because as I look out, I don't have the compassion that Jesus has. And because of that, if I'm gonna be raised up by the Father to go out and to address needs that I don't have compassion for, then Father, I gotta be broken about the condition of these people. I need to see them the way that you see them. And not just simply as the world sees them or my condemning heart sees them. Father, I need to be broken with compassion. Father, change me. The first prayer we need to pray as a church is, Father, change us. Change us. You do not have the power and the strength to have this kind of compassion for the world the way that God did unless God is dominating your heart, opening your eyes, and working through your life. You can't do it. You guys know it. You're like, how are we gonna do that? I don't know. We're gonna need some Holy Spirit. But we have to change. You know what that looks like? Let me just apply this real quick. And When I'm in conflict, with another human being or I'm in conflict, you know what I'm praying to the Lord? Lord, Lord, give me peace, right? Give me peace. Help me, Father. Help me to get through this. Okay, if I believe this verse, you know how I'm gonna start praying? Father, help the person who's making my life miserable. Bring them peace. Show up in their life. Reveal yourself to them. That's, that's, a, that's a radical prayer. That changes the heart because no longer are we centered on ourselves. We're now centered on Jesus because I can't do this apart from Jesus. And we're saying, Father, would you give to them the very thing I need for myself? Church, how would that change us? How would that engage us differently? And you know where that power comes from? 
Be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. To the degree you experience God's compassion, to that degree you will have compassion for others. You don't, remember the quote, what you believe about God is the most important thing about you. You don't believe God is that compassionate towards you. I don't. And until we are broken by God's compassion for us and we receive it as the leper, as the outcast, as the one who has suffered in our sin, until we receive his compassion like that and say, Father, thank you, thank you. You ran towards me, you cleansed me, you changed me. Until we experience that, we will not have the compassion to give to others. It starts with the gospel in us. But are we willing to take the opportunity to open ourselves up to God's love and compassion to that degree? It's not easy. But if we as a community, a church, do that together, it's possible. It's possible because we have the best news of all. And we have the spirit of God that longs to change us and show us the truth and the compassion of our God. Father, we love you. I'm so proud of these kids. So proud of their example, the testimony, just beautiful words, deep, meaningful words from the hearts of young men and young women. Father, that you're raising up. And as a church, Lord, we need to be the kind of church that will lead these kids in a way that really reflects your character. Father, you have a love for this world. You know the brokenness of this world. You don't look past sin and ignore it. But you don't walk past the sinner without loving and showing compassion. Father, you see the world differently than we do. And so help us, Father, help us, Spirit of God, to see things differently. Help us to get off of ourselves and to be centered on you. Father, would you break us around this compassion? Would this verse haunt us this week in a good way, Father, because you are chasing after us that we may look like you. Help us, Father. Help us, Father. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.